You're listening to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program, news for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jerry Mead Lucero, and this is the Sunday, December 5th, 2021 edition of Labor Express. On tonight's program, will Strike Vember become Strike Sember? These are getting trickier to pronounce each month, I tell you, but it's an important and difficult to answer question. Quite honestly, the larger question is, have we perhaps made a bit too much of the 2021 wave of strikes, or in many cases, almost strikes? Regular listeners will note that since the October 24th episode, I've moved from referring to the current phenomenon as the 2021 strike wave to the 2021 wave of strikes, in large part as a response to the wisdom of labor journalist Maximilian Alvarez, who has cautioned against the perhaps premature use of the term strike wave. My partly playful use of the semantics here might seem a bit silly, and indeed it's difficult to parse the difference between these two terms, but it's my symbolic way of acknowledging the wisdom of Alvarez when he points out that workers need to be explicitly conscious of the fact that they are participating in a quote-unquote strike wave for it to actually become a strike wave. He questions how true that is in this current context. On tonight's episode, we consider even more relevant data to add to the caution of calling what we have seen as a strike wave. Jonah Furman of Labor Notes will point out that while it may be exciting to consider the number of strikes and near strikes of this past year, which certainly feels like something historic, like an upsurge in labor activity, the actual number of striking workers is actually less than it's been in some fairly recent years, and of course pales in comparison to the truly historic strike waves like of 1945-46. Perhaps most important of all is the fact that several of the near strikes, we're talking about Kaiser, IATSE here and others, have resulted in contracts that may be historic in the sense of avoiding the concessionary nature of so many contracts of the past several decades, but also seem hardly evidence of a working class going on the offensive. We are not witnessing, at least not yet, a return to the militant fighting labor movement of the 30s and 40s, just the avoidance perhaps of the full-on rout and retreat of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. It is too easy at times for old labor movement advocates like myself to get carried away with any signs of life in the labor movement. And to be clear, there certainly was a great deal to be excited about over the last several months. But a sober assessment of the situation is necessary and called for. I hope tonight's episode might offer some of that. We'll also continue to celebrate the real undeniable signs of a reinvigorated spirit within the labor movement and the working class in general. We'll start with a conversation with Jonah Furman, staff writer and organizer with Labor Notes. We had Jonah on our October 3rd episode to talk about the possibility of a strike at John Deere, something, of course, that did occur relatively shortly after we aired that episode, and which I think it can be considered historic in many ways. Tonight, we discuss the outcome of the strike now that the rank-and-file UAW members at John Deere have ratified the new contract with a modest majority vote. Our conversation also includes discussion of the other contracts and tentative agreements recently reached, including Kaiser Permanente and with members of IATSE, workers in the entertainment industry. In the second half of the program, we're going to hear directly from some workers for Kaiser Permanente who are actually on strike or working without a contract, despite the tentative agreement reached between management and the majority of the healthcare unions. Member of several unions, including SEIU and the National Union of Healthcare Workers, joined Striking Operating Engineers Local 39 for one-day sympathy strikes in the last weeks of November. But first, Jonah Furman of Labor Notes. 
I began our conversation acknowledging the tremendous number of major labor news developments over the past several weeks, but focused our conversation initially on the new contract at John Deere. So it's really good to talk to you again. Um, you know, there's so much we could be talking about right now. There is so much going on. Um, you know, there's the decision not to strike at Kaiser Permanente and the new contract there. There's the same situation at IATSE. There's the ongoing Kellogg's workers strike. There's the victory of the Reform Caucus of the Teamsters, which is a huge, you know, thing. But of course, what I really wanted to talk to you about, well, at least to start off with, is the situation at John Deere. Because when we talked last time, it was on our October third episode, and it was before the strike had even started. We were talking about the possibility of a strike. Uh, of course, a strike did occur. And then uh, not only did a strike did occur, not only did the rank and file reject the first tentative agreement by a huge margin, but then they rec- they, they uh, rejected the second tentative agreement. Uh, I think it was by uh, 55%, if I remember. Um, and it's only on the third offer did the membership finally um, uh, decide to accept the contract. I think 61% voted in favor of the contract. So I'm really curious to hear from what you're hearing from your contacts at uh, John Deere, what they think of this new contract. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a mixed bag. On the one hand, there's celebration, you know, there's a feeling that they won the best contract they've ever won in anyone's working memory. They got an instant 10% raise. They uh, beefed up their pensions. They, uh, staved off the third tier that was proposed initially, and they uh, won back their cost of living adjustment. They took no cutback. So across the board, everyone, all the members acknowledge that this is the best contract they've ever ratified. Uh, and, you know, it, it came after rejecting a contract against the wishes of their union leadership and obviously against the wishes of the company. And really quickly turned into gains. So, you know, not it's not only a 10% raise, but they doubled the raise that was on offer, right? So they showed that you can strike and win uh, and win quickly and win big against a really big company. Um, at the same time, you know, you had people who were felt like this was the best they were ever going to do. And any gains they were going to make had to be made now because the next time the contract's up, it's going to be totally different conditions. There's no way to predict what it'll be, but it probably won't be the most profitable year on record. So they felt like now is the time to lock in big gains. And they, the, you know, the, the 40% who voted no all the way through the third agreement don't necessarily feel like this was the best they could have done. That was sort of the logic behind it. So it's mixed. There's some people feeling like, we left money on the table, which is almost always the case in union negotiations. Um, there's some people who feel like, wow, we fought back and won. There's some people who feel like we will live to see another day. 2027 is the next contract. They want to be better organized and better prepared to win uh, even more. Um, and, you know, what's interesting is that John Deere came out with their earnings um, call just last week, right before Thanksgiving. And they said, you know, despite the strike, this was still their most profitable year on record, just about $6 billion in profits of the last year. And they're projecting for next year, six and a half to $7 billion in profits. So it's certainly the case that there's more money to be had uh, for these workers. Uh, The question is really one of strategy of where do you go from, you know, one big contract win? How do you turn that into a longer term uh, clawing back of conditions and gains at the company? 
Now, you mentioned that they uh, fought back or pushed back on the uh, a possible third tier. Uh, one of the big concerns of the workers at John Deere and one of the big concerns, I think, in almost all of the contract fights uh, that I've been you know, reporting on the last several months now is uh, the uh, existence of, of, you know, two tier already existing within the contracts. Where is that at now with this new contract? So what's interesting is that, you know, part of the fight at John Deere has been about the 97 tier in 1997. They were one of the first UAW, uh, units to have a, uh, a really big tier difference between people who were hired, uh, before 1997 and hired after 1997. And those divisions still remain. So, the big, the biggest thing that, the biggest difference between a pre-97 and post-97 John Deere worker is post-retirement health care. So if you got hired before 1997, you have health care for life. This was how generations of John Deere workers filled the gap between, you know, a really strenuous physical job and getting to that Medicare age. Um, and after 97, there's no post-retirement health care and you're kind of on your own on that front. So that gap is still there. Um, so they did not close the tiers fully. They did, you know, at this, by this point, they've for the most part closed the wage difference between the tiers. They didn't fully close the pension gap between the tiers, but this contract did bring post 97s back up, you know, closer to that pre 97 pension level. Um, I'll also say that, you know, something that we don't talk about much is that there's really few pre 97 workers left. So when we talk about a two tier contract at John Deere, there are some people making more money next to you in the factory, you know, uh, under different conditions from this pre-97 tier. But for the most part, what we're talking about is the ideal of pre-97, what it used to be like to work at John Deere. It's not so much a t- two-tier like we see it currently at UPS or at GM or other companies where you're literally working next to people who are making more or less money than you, and it divides the workforce in that way. At John Deere, there's very few. I mean, there's locals that have in the tens of pre-97 workers left working because, you know, for the most part, they have reached retirement age and had better retirement conditions anyway. So they're they're out of there. So, you know, there's still a two tier um, on paper at John Deere. I think part of why we saw more unity in this contract round than in previous ones at John Deere is that most people are post-97 at this point. So the pre-97 tier is really you know, it's something that members want to shoot for. They know the company can do it because they've done it in the past. It's what they knew from their parents, their grandparents, their aunts and uncles. Um, but it's not really the case that there's a ton of these pre-97 workers working side by side with workers with lesser conditions. So besides the, the two-tier situation or the 97 tiers, you, you refer to it, what would be, you say, uh, for the 40% that, that voted no, even on the third uh, uh, TA, what would you say are, were the main issues that they felt? Well, you, you mentioned, of course, just in general, they felt that they could have won more in these conditions right now. Is there anything specifically, though, you think that they were hoping to achieve? Yeah, I think the two big things really are still post-retirement health care, which is not abstract for people. You know, this is how are we going to, how am I going to make the gap between, if you start working when you're 18, you, you know, get your 30 years at 48, how are you supposed to, you know, live without healthcare paid for, especially with rising healthcare costs? So this is a, a serious uh, big picture issue that people want to address. Not everyone thinks it's possible, but a lot of these members do, and they want to fight for it in the long term. Um, another thing is just the wages. So, you know, 
John Deere, you get good benefits. Your wages are okay, but they really don't compare. There's some some of these towns, like in Atumwa, Iowa, you can go across town and work at the meatpacking plant and make you know three to five dollars more an hour than working at John Deere. The raises we saw, 10% immediately. You know, it's a percentage. So if your base rate isn't that high to start with, you don't come out that great. At the end of this contract in 2027, I believe the most common pay grade will be making something like. $25.25 an hour, which doesn't at all compare with what UPS drivers make or will be making in 2027 or construction workers or plenty of other comparable, you know, Fortune 100 companies, um, blue collar manufacturing work. So the raises were good percentage wise, but they really did not bring these workers up to, you know, what other auto workers are making or, you know, what, what, uh, what they think the company can afford. So wages and post-retirement healthcare are really sort of in terms of bread and butter, what do they actually want? That's what is going to be still on the agenda in 2027. Hmm. What would you say are the major highlights then? What, what are the, the, the big gains? You, you mentioned, of course, there, there is a significant wage gain, even though if it's even if they're still you know below where uh, they should be. Um, what, what would you, besides that, what would you say were the real highlights of this uh, uh, victory for the for the strike? Yeah, so the the two signature highlights really were the wage gain, the fact that it doubled between the first offer and the the, first, the the next offer after the strike. I mean, that's very emboldening, right? And there was a lot of people who said, well, that's what we can get in, you know, 17 days on strike. Let's go another 17 days on strike. That was part of that logic. So that was one big win. It was not just what the percentage was, but doubling it with strike. Another big win was... Um, the cost of living adjustment had been taken taken away in 2015. Another example of sort of, you know, whatever percent we're talking about that that goes into your wages, it's also sort of the victory of having won back something that was given away, which is very rare to win something back. Same goes for the third tier. So the third tier was going to take away pensions for all new hires, switch everybody to a 401k, and they managed to beat that back. Um, so now new hires will still have a pension, which, you know, part of why that's important is not just so that conditions remain the same for the next generation, but that it keeps the pension system secure generally. They're not going to gut the pension for those who are relying on it for their retirement. So those were, I think, some of the, the biggest wins. There were other, you know, things that people felt were important about, um, you know, their incentive pay system called KIPP, the Continuous Improvement Pay Program, uh, that was, you know, beefed up a little bit. But really, it was about killing that new tier, winning back the COLA, and um, you know, doubling the, the wage offer uh, in 17 days on strike. Right. And I guess if you, if you were to sum it up, I think what you could say, right, is that, you know, over the I've been doing I've been reporting on on labor uh, stuff for 20 years or so now. Um, and, you know, with the vast majority of uh, contract fights, either they're concessionary or at the best of times, you know, or a lot of the time it's, it's fighting off any concessions. We have a case here where there's more than just fighting off concessions. There's actually some significant gains. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, so it started as defense. It started as they're going to hit us with a third tier and we need to fight back, make sure that doesn't happen. But it turned into this wage offer is totally unacceptable. We need to go on offense and double it. And that to me is what rejecting, the second contract was all about. It was saying, we're going to hold out for more. Um, I feel like in the labor movement, we're always looking for examples of 
you know, you can call it like the reverse Patco or something, but the idea that you can fight and win. Um, and we have very few examples of that at scale on a big, a big company with a big profile, you know, in a, in, in a, uh, strike that goes for weeks. You know, we don't usually see, uh, an offer get better. We see the worst things, uh, averted, you know, Kaiser, the Kaiser strike threat. It was a, the settlement was fine. The main highlight of it was they aren't going to tier. It wasn't like things are going to get so much better for Kaiser workers under this new contract. It's just that they're not going to get that much worse. That's, you know, sort of the frame that a lot of our fights take. Um, and if anything, to me, John Deere is an example of you don't have to listen to the company. You don't have to listen to your union leaders if you feel like they're off base in terms of what victory looks like. And if you fight, you can win. doesn't mean you will every time, but this is an important inspirational example. I've already talked to workers you know, at the shipyards uh, and all these different industries who say, we want to do what John Deere did. That's what we want. You know, so this inspirational element is really important, especially in a labor movement that does not have a lot of high profile private sector wins. That's perfect, because that's exactly what my next question was going to be, which is, you know, the bigger kind of what does this mean for the labor movement as a whole? And it, and, and I guess the, the biggest part of it is that you strikes can be won, right? That that uh, you can have success. And, and the 17 days you mentioned too, this really wasn't a long strike by the, you know, example of so many other strikes. Uh, so they, they were able to win in a relatively short period of time. And it seems like the, the key there was the determination, the, the fact that the workers were willing not only to uh, say no to the company, but then say no to their union leadership multiple times. Yeah, I think that's a really important piece of this story. Um, it's First of all, workers, when they're striking, they're not just, you know, they're not like robots. They have strategy in mind. They're looking at when is the company doing its financial call? When, you know, how much product do they have right now? When is the harvest and the planting season? What is their prerogative and how can we influence that right now? So part of it is that deer struck, these, these workers struck at a really, really good time to strike, both in terms of the labor market and in terms of how the company was doing and in the calendar year and where they were at in terms of the supply chain. There was a lot of things going in their favor. But more important than that was, you know, there was, there's, a, there's, a, uh, there's a universe in which they say yes to the first offer, even by a narrow margin, and there's no strike, and there's no fight, and there's no doubling of the wage gain, and there is, you know, there's no pensions for new hires. That's totally uh, plausible. The only thing that stopped it was the members saying, we're not going to settle for this deal. Uh, one other thing I would say about the labor movement in general, is that, you know, the U, this is huge for the UAW. It came at a, a kind of incredible moment for the UAW. Today is, you know, Monday is the, is the day they're counting ballots in the referendum vote that will determine, you know, how they elect new leadership in that union after, you know, a long years of corruption and concession scandal. And you have all these members watching what's happening at John Deere. That's almost a dramatization of the decades of concessions. And, you know, not directly, but in some ways, there's, there's these connections to the corruption scandal at, at the, you know, historically at John Deere, for example, the, the guy who negotiated the 2015 contract just finished uh, a jail term for taking money from Chrysler for more favorable contracts. So members are connecting the dots on this. And if anything, I think the biggest sort of inspirational impact is going to be in the UAW where members say, wow, we can reject contracts, we can reject concessions. We can strike more. We can be more strategic. 
you know, we can talk member to member more, we can organize independently, all these things that uh, the John Deere workers did. And I think helped a lot of members. I mean, I've talked to a lot of John Deere workers in particular who realized that, you know, the, the problem they saw with their union bringing back a bad contract and, and trying to get members to vote it in, even though they knew it wasn't the best deal they could get. This is a problem in the broader UAW and the broader labor movement. And if it's sort of taken to heart and put into put into action, I think we could see more ripple effects of people not accepting the status quo in their union. You know, you mentioned that, you know, one of the reasons that the workers realized that this was the was the ideal time to take on the company was had to do with, you know, their record profits right now. The other factor, I guess, uh, too, is the um, in what we're seeing, you know, the, the whole development of the strike Tober and strike Vember. And I guess it's going to be strike December. I don't know. I'm not sure it's getting harder and harder to, to pull together these titles, but um, is, of course, the historically uh, low unemployment and the high labor demand right now. Um, I, I'm assuming that that was a major factor in the workers decision too to take on the company. Oh, sure. I mean, I had a, I had one worker tell me he got 11 job offers in his first week on strike. So, you know, the the, the fundamental tactic of the company is to say, we can go longer than you can without paying you. You know, we can starve you out. We can wait you out. But if you have another paycheck that you can just bring in with the snap of your fingers, because it's such a tight labor market, so favorable to finding a new job, um, especially at a place like Deer, where the reason you work that job is not necessarily the high wages. You are working it for the benefits and things like that, which means to replace your cash flow, you don't have to get, you know, an equivalently high benefit job. You just have to get money coming through the door, which in this labor market was not hard. So John Deere workers were easily going next door to, you know, Target or Amazon or big warehouses and getting comparable wages to what they would get at Deere. So they weren't feeling, you know, not, I I can't speak for everyone, of course, but there was a large chunk of workers who were really not feeling the pressure to get back to work in terms of keeping the paychecks flowing. They felt they could easily go elsewhere. And on the other side of it, it was pretty clear to most people that Deere was not going to be able to replace 10,000 workers. Um, You know, maybe they could get a few hundred people in the door, but there's not just a huge reserve army of people ready to take their jobs. And workers knew that. So, you know, their calculus was, they're not going to be able to operate the company. I'm going to be able to keep food on the table. So why should I rush back at the first offer? You know, maybe I'll wait and see what they have wait a few more deals. You know, and this raises a, a bigger question too, I'd love to get your thoughts on, which is there's this question of, you know, are we experiencing a 2021 strike wave or, you know, Maximilian Alvarez, I'm sure you're very familiar with, you know, because I know he's worked with Labor Notes. He's been very cautionary about that term. In fact, I've, I, after listening to one of his concerts, which we played here on the program, I've switched to calling it wave of strikes as opposed to strike wave, just in case, you know, it's really not the right terminology at the moment. But his his main point is that a strike wave is self-referential in the sense that workers really understand that they're in a strike wave. Where, where do you see things are at now with, with all that's happened in this year? It's a great question. I, I'm definitely of two minds of it. I, you know, historically, I've been very, I don't know if the word's pessimistic, but sort of like I see people wanting to make something up more than it is in a lot of labor events. You know, they, they want to say, oh, the general strike is around the corner. And obviously that's not true. 
But I also think that, you know, I think if you look at the numbers of how many people struck in October, it pales in comparison to even October from two years ago. But what's interesting about that is, you know, the numbers in in October 21 was something like 25,000 people went on strike that month. In October 2019, something like 85,000 people were on strike. But we call 2021 a strike wave because it has something more than arithmetic to it, right? It's not just about how many people struck. It's also about the fact that these strikes were felt to be connected to the same issues, essential workers, the supply chain, the tight labor market, the pandemic. You know, uh, there was a feeling that these strikes were about more than uh, just the workplaces that they happened to take place in. So I think there was also a political valence to all this stuff, what was happening in Congress, you know, debating the infrastructure bill, the reconciliation bill, all these things about how are we going to manage the labor market? How are we going to manage our economy? It felt like these strikes were sort of drawing from the same well as those political and social conversations about essential workers, pandemic, the economy, all that stuff. So I kind of think it's right to say it's not a strike wave in the sense of the numbers, Um, I also think Max's point is right about workers looking at other strikes, you know, in in the teachers strikes, that was a strike wave in the very basic sense of teachers were watching, you know, teachers in Arizona watched what happened in West Virginia and said, I want to do that too. That's not happening to the extent that we saw then. But if you talk to workers, they'll say it's striked over, you know, they'll say, I saw what happened at John Deere. So it's not totally happening in a vacuum. It's hard to sort of, I don't think, I don't think the term strike wave is like, you know, there's no scientific definition to that. I do think it's a mistake to say, well, the numbers weren't there, so it doesn't count. You know, look at other times when there was more people on strike. I think that's true in general, but what wasn't there previously is sort of the political valence, you know, the idea that these things are all connected, that they have their kitchen table issues for a lot more people than they were you know, even if there was more people on strike a couple of years back. So, yeah, I'm kind of mixed on on the question. I think it's right to not overstate the fact. And we're still at a super low point of, you know, uh, private sector strike activity. Um, you know, we're something comparable to 1986 or something like that, which is certainly not, uh, you know, certainly not uh, a high point um, of working class activity. Hmm. Of course, you, we have to add in terms of the uh, numbers, and this this gets really fuzzy now. But we, I, I, you know, economist uh, Jack Rasmus, who we uh, frequently have on the program, I, I played a clip from one of his recent uh, podcasts a uh, uh, month or so ago, and he was really focusing on the informal strike in a sense of the unemployed, right? The fact that uh, people are just refusing really crummy jobs right now, right? And that that has to be factored into kind of this idea of a, you know, strike wave. Uh, again, I, th- I think he's careful about using that terminology as well, but but that that's 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 another kind of hard to hard to quite quantify or to grasp, but that, that that's a part of the picture as well. Yeah, I mean, I've I've been fond of saying that it's two sides of the same coin. The the the, the great resignation is the unorganized version of the strike wave, right? It's what you do if you don't have an organization that can stay and fight to improve the job, you say, screw it, I'm out, you know, I quit. Um, so I do think there's some deep connection there. I also think we should take into account strike authorization votes, you know, um, the fact that uh, unions settle before they actually walk off the job isn't really a great indicator of, you know, did they 
fight harder this time around? Did more members engage in the process? You know, there's, there's other indicators of sort of fight back that we're seeing. Um, I think it's, it's a mixed bag, but like Kaiser, I, I don't think you can count it on the strike wave, but that was, those were members who were ready to strike and won sort of won preemptively what they had sought out to win. So does that count for the sort of like working class wave of, of fighters? I think it should. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's not the same as millions of people walking off the job. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only Labor News and Current Affairs radio program. We need to take a station ID break, but when we return, more of my interview with Jonah Furman, staff writer for Labor Notes. We discussed the tentative agreement between the majority of healthcare unions and management at Kaiser Permanente, as well as the broader state of the labor movement in this unique historic moment that we appear to be in. So make sure to stay tuned. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for people by working people. Before the break, you heard Jonah Furman, staff writer and organizer with Labor Notes, begin to refer to the tentative agreement between the Alliance of Healthcare Unions and management in the Kaiser Permanente Healthcare Network. The members of multiple unions covered by this TA are voting on whether to ratify the contract this week. I was curious to get Jonah's assessment of what's in the tentative agreement. I'm glad you brought the Kaiser situation back up again, because I was just about to ask you too to to get your thoughts. Um, you know, talking about examples of where the workers didn't strike, but they they won contract. I don't know if they're. I guess I'm going to ask you whether how much it was a gain or not in the Kaiser case. Here, you you were saying earlier that it was mainly beating off concessions. We've we've talked about the IATSE situation quite a bit in our last program, where I think there was a lot of frustration. I really expected there to be a strike with IATSE, and I think there was a lot of frustration on uh, um, many of the members that that the they weren't they didn't strike and that they didn't make big, bigger gains, particularly in terms of the hours of work and so on. On the Kaiser situation, what, what I don't know the Kaiser situation as well. Love to get whatever thoughts you have on that. And I guess you've already expressed some of them, but yeah. So I mean, essentially, where where the Kaiser situation started was the company wanted to offer one percent wage increases for three years, so three percent over three years, and they also wanted to cut wages for new hires by twenty, an average of twenty six percent. Essentially, they were saying, look, our, our, uh, our wages are out of line with our sort of market studies. They did these sort of market studies saying, really, people should be earning less money than they're earning at our company. Um, so they said, what we'll do is we'll just make sure that all new hires are getting these cut rates. And everyone who currently works, there won't get any cuts, but they'll get really meager raises. So what they ended up with was something like 10% over four years. So, you know, again, compare with John Deere, who got 10% in the first year. Um, and they killed the idea of new hires getting less pay than current hires. So it was, it was a serious improvement from the offer. Um, and it also, you know, the big thing at Kaiser is they have I don't know what the number is, but they have 200,000 employees and, you know, maybe, uh, maybe a hundred thousand of them are union, something like that. Um, and two tier there for, for this contract, which didn't cover all the workers would have meant that's where it's going for everyone else. Right. So it was, it was very much about staving off the worst, uh, possible outcome. Um, I don't know that workers feel, you know, that they won big, uh, in terms of things like 
you know, I don't know all the details of the contract in terms of like uh, nurse staffing ratios, for example, um, or other issues that would actually improve uh, a hospital job or a healthcare job. Um, my sense was mostly that they were uh, happy that they got, you know, okay wage increases or better than they expected, but far, far below inflation. Um, and we're happy to uh, kill the two-tier proposal. And there is this small little, um, or not small, but th- this this little uh, extra element to the the Kaiser situation that I think again shows there this maybe increased militancy right now with workers, which is you know the the, the main contract that we're referring to was the um, I forget the name of the the organization, but it's it's a it's a actually a, a coalition of a whole bunch of unions, primarily in the I think the uh, the, the the healthcare part of of Kaiser, but the operating engineers. They continued to be in a contract fight, and there were these sympathy strikes in California um, on behalf of the operating interests. So that, that's that's an interesting development, I think, that points out that will, workers are definitely willing to take a more militant stand than maybe in the past. Yeah, I, I, I think I think that was pretty impressive. Is you have 700 operating engineers, meaning you know people who do uh, skilled building maintenance and things like that, um, who are striking. They've been striking since mid-September. And you had tens of thousands of, you know, healthcare workers with SEIU and the nurses and the IFPTE um, joining them for a couple of days on sympathy strikes. Uh, I think, you know, I would have loved to see those sympathy strikes line up with, as you said, the Alliance of Healthcare Unions is the is the other group that was um, that was ready to strike. You would have seen, you know, a hundred thousand Kaiser workers on strike or some some number like that, but. Just to see a sympathy strike like that is pretty rare and pretty impressive. Are there any other developments that you think we should be keeping our eye on uh, in the future here in terms of contract fights or possible strikes coming? You know, it's funny. After John Deere and Kaiser and IATSE, uh, things like 2,000 nurses in Michigan preparing to strike don't feel as big, but they, they you know, they are big. So in Lansing, uh, at Sparrow Hospital, there's 2,200 nurses who I know are considering a strike. There's a few others. I, I would say right now where my head is at is watching the UAW referendum results and also, you know, trying to watch where what new direction the Teamsters will be going in. We have new leadership at the Teamsters Union who, you know, who knows? It's too early to say whether there will be a strike or not at UPS in 2023, but that's certainly where sort of the conversation is going. And that's 300,000 workers would be by far the largest strike of my lifetime. Um, And that plus a UAW with, you know, new leadership of some sort that has to be, you know, whether they want to or not has to be more committed towards anti-concessionary bargaining because that's what they'll have been elected on. Um, Those developments could mean a lot for, industrial unionism in this country. Um, And the last thing I would say I'm watching very closely is in Mexico, uh, you know, this is outside the U.S. labor movement per se, but there's a similar movement of these, there's these, there's a long history of company unions or, you know, not quite real unions. And these auto workers have begun voting them out um, and voting in, trying to vote in fighting real unions that, you know, at companies like GM and and other large automakers. So there's a lot of sort of um, questioning about what direction is our labor movement going to go, both in the U.S. and internationally. And there's some encouraging 
signs among members that they're, you know, ready now to challenge the status quo. Yeah, that is interesting and exciting news to hear about the situation in Mexico. And certainly I agree with you that the uh, UPS contract now that we have a reform caucus and the Teamsters, uh, that's a big, big thing to keep an eye on. So I, I agree with that. Uh, Jonah, thank you so much for taking out so much time to talk to me again. I really appreciate this. Yeah, thanks, Jerry. Thank you once again to Jonah Furman of Labor Notes for that terrific interview and for being generous with his time twice now in the last couple months. I encourage you to check out his articles at labornotes.org, as well as those, of course, of his colleagues that will continue to be the most important publication of the labor movement in this country. You can find a link to Labor Notes up at laborexpress.org. As I mentioned at the top of tonight's episode and referenced in my interview with Jonah, the labor struggles at Kaiser Permanente are far from over. For one, the new tentative agreement between the Alliance of Healthcare Unions and Kaiser Management has yet to be ratified. Union members will vote on the TA this week. And while a strike of tens of thousands of Kaiser employees was averted, there are currently picket lines at Kaiser facilities across Northern California at this moment. The 700 members of the Operating Engineers Local 39 who work at Kaiser facilities have been on strike since September 17th. The Operating Engineers were joined in the picket lines by members of SEIU, the National Union of Healthcare Workers, and other unions in one-day sympathy strikes at the end of November. Once again, just like on our last episode, we turn to an old friend of Labor Express Radio, Steve Zeltzer of the Labor Video Project, in order to hear the voices of some Kaiser strikers. Steve headed out to the picket lines during the sympathy strikes in San Francisco. In this following excerpt from Steve's recent video on this, we hear first from one of the members of Local 39, followed by several SEIU members who struck for a day in solidarity with the operating engineers. My name is Julio. Julio. I'm from engineering. It's not uh, getting the contract that we want. We only want 1% over from last last time, okay? Uh, we're basing everything on the cost of living. We have three we had two percent. Now we want three percent at least. Most of most of the guys live in uh, San Francisco area, you know everything is very expensive. That additional one percent would would balance everything nowadays from the last contract. That's all we want. We don't their rates are going up. Their rate they're charging. Absolutely, people. absolutely. So you know who's making money out here, right? They're making money. We only want a little bit so that we can balance everything around in, in, in the Bay Area. Northern California, 700, 700 engineers are feeling the same thing, that we need a little bit of an increase because we have to go with the cost of living and everything else in, in the Bay Area, particularly San Francisco and the rest of uh, Northern California. Did you ever think that Kaiser would do something like this, keep you out for more than 60 days? Well, you know, I'm still baffled. I don't know why. I mean, we only want 1%. And yet, that 1%, they can't even do it. That's why we're fighting, because we're not going to give up. And we want our right, you know what I mean? So we want to make sure that uh, we stick to what, what our plan is, because that 1% is nothing. I mean, everything's very expensive. Even the gas nowadays is almost five, $5. And many workers have to commute, you know, into San Francisco. The workers are mostly across the bay. They cross two bridges to get here, okay? And then you got to pay the parking in the garage. 
that 1% is nothing compared to what we're asking. And you, you're skilled engineers, biomed, how are they able to operate the hospital with these people that they brought in? Well, they did hire, Kaiser hired uh, a lot of scabs from a different part of the, uh, the country, from Louisiana and in LA. So they come out here and uh, they're doing the work and they're paying them a huge amount of money. So they're spending a big amount of money to- uh, Absolutely, uh, the, the scabs, the scabs that uh, are here working. Are these people certified? Because in order to work at a hospital, you have to have... Yeah, they're certified. They're, they're, of course, they're certified. But uh, the job that they're doing, obviously, they cannot compare with, with the in-house that, that we're working on. And I've seen there have been some floods here. I saw a picture of some flood in the hospital. They don't know where to shut it off. Absolutely, and yeah. Things like that. So if we're out here, that would, that would never happen. Because we know all the systems out here. It takes a long time to learn. Yeah, absolutely. So we're here. We're not doing anything negative. A lot of cops are out here thinking that something bad's going to happen. Not, not like that. We're just out here exercising our rights for our benefits to be at least maintained and uh, a small amount of increase. And a big, big support from the SEIU. They came out here in big force. I mean, it is a big, it's a big plus. They provide the food. They provide the music and all the positive things that happen. And there are a lot of engineers in San Francisco, in the buildings and other hospitals. And We have a lot of buildings out here. I'm estimating at least maybe 13 buildings, okay? I can name so many buildings because I'm one of the guy that covers a lot of buildings. And uh, the biomeds, they maintain all of the equipment. For example, in the OR, the, uh, the, the, the pump, the, the machines for your heart, uh, the heart-lung machines, they do all of those vital stuff. And I don't know who's maintaining those nowadays because I'm, not, I, I'm in the engineering department, not in biomed. So it's a lot of equipment that I don't know who's maintaining it right now for the patients. I don't know. And also there was a strike at, uh, at Macy's. Macy's. The engineers were out there, they're still out. I mean, are you concerned about an effort to break unions, break Local 39? Of course we're concerned about it. So I didn't really understand fully how important the strike is still now, because it's my first one. So it is very important. So if one of my fellow brothers, sisters out here, the SEIU, ever be in the same situation, I will be 100% to support them. It's not how important it is. Um, my understanding is this couldn't come to an agreement on the uh, wages and benefits. Well, Kaiser is making a lot of profits. Yeah. Apparently, what? We're surprised. What's uh, going on? That's why we're surprised that they're not sharing some of that profit with them. Uh, we've had a rough year, and they've been doing a hard job, and they should, you know, get a decent uh, raise, annual raise or a contract. But they seem to be holding out or just can't come to an agreement. What kind of work do you do? Uh, I work in the back office. That's a big part. That's a big part. Why are they out so long? I just couldn't come to an agreement because uh, it's been 60-some days, and the pharmacy, they came to an agreement uh, this past Sunday, and they just announced that strike was going to start just that week, too. So it's like they sell with them so fast. Why not? Why not with the local 39? You think they're trying to bust the union? I assume so. I assume so. My name's Adam. We're out here to support. I'm part of SEIU. I'm one of the members, one of the stewards, and uh, we're out here supporting local 39. The engineers, they've been off, uh, I believe, 62 days now? 63 days. Uh,
for for trying to find an agreement with Kaiser. And yeah, we're we're just trying to show some solidarity and love to our uh, brothers and sisters in 39. It's definitely uh, hard without our peeps who who know all about our equipment and on how everything runs. Uh, you know, we have so many great biomedical engineers and stationary engineers, and you know they just keep the place running, just like every single cog that that's part of the machine that we have as a hospital. My name is April Crawford, and I am a Kaiser employee. I'm a medical assistant. I work here, and I've been here for about 10 years. And we're out here for a sympathy strike for our local 39 engineers who have who are, they're waiting for a contract, a fair contract. And Kaiser has made a lot of money during the pandemic. That's People haven't come in, Kaiser members, I'm a Kaiser member, people haven't come in for the services. Yes. It seems they've made a lot of profit. Why are they taking such a hard line against them? That's what we're trying to figure out. And that's exactly why we are standing with our brothers, our SEIU brothers, to support them. I mean, they take care of our patients. They're a very important part of the organization. And they, we all need to be treated fairly. And they haven't come up with any sort of fair agreement at all. So we're out here for a sympathy strike until 7 a.m. tomorrow morning. And how are they keeping the hospital running? Because the engineers at Biomeds are trained people to take care of a hospital. That, I mean, it seems like there would be... Probably hard, but to be honest, maybe somebody else can answer that question. But to be frankly honest, that's for them to figure out. And Kaiser calls itself a nonprofit. Comments? <laughs> no, I think my smile says it all. My smile says it all. If they continue to hold the hard line against the Kaiser engineers, what do you think the unions should do? It's not just here, it's all over. It seems like there's an attack on labor globally in this country. They need to come to an agreement. I mean, Kaiser has made profits, billions of dollars. Executives are making millions of dollars. I mean, we're the frontline people doing the work. They need to come to an agreement and they need to pay, pay the, pay the engineers. They need to come, like they, you know, they need to do that. They need to come and pay them. Sit at the table, make an agreement that's fair. Robert, how to show support for our union brothers and sisters. When an attack on one of them is an attack on all of us, organized labor has to stick together. And you think that's happening now? <laughs> Not like it used to. They, there's been a conservative, concerted effort on the powers that, from the powers to be, an attack on the working people of this country. It's been happening for decades. So we got to start fighting somewhere. We're going to start fighting here. The operating engineers are not the only union members who work for Kaiser who still don't have an agreement with management. Mental health staff, members of the National Union of Healthcare Workers, have been working without a contract since October 1st. They joined the one-day sympathy strikes in late November, not only to demonstrate solidarity with the operating engineers, but also to call attention to their own contract fight and their fight for better staffing in order to better serve their clients. I'm Lynn McKenna. I'm from NUHW, and the NUHW union that represents thousands of psychotherapists, we are here saying that we need a contract the con that Kaiser has not signed, has not been equitable about. And we are here with our brothers and sisters from the engineering union who've been out for two months, who make COVID air safe, who 
run the lights in the emergency room and in the operating room. They don't have a contract. Kaiser, you are, you have billions in profits. Your executives make millions and your CEO makes tens of millions. You could do different. You could do better. And we're asking you to do better. For us as therapists who are giving our love and our life to our patients because we care about them. As you know, my colleagues here are here to say, um, that's why we're here. That is why we are here. Kaiser, listen, you can do this. You can be fair to us and we're here for the patients. Your administrators, we're here to hold the hands of our patients, to listen to their woes, to help them with their anxiety, their depression, schizophrenia. Um, and the pandemic has, has really exacerbated all that, I mean, including among your employees. What, what effect does that have? Yes, absolutely. Um, for those who have, who have lost contact with others because of the pandemic, we're a contact for them as we work with them over their anxiety, their trauma. Oh, I have a patient who is a long hauler with COVID. She can't appear at things, but we can be together and I can support her and let her know she's loved, she's important. Kaiser, take care of us and as we are taking care of others and you can do this. They've been fined millions of dollars for not having proper treatment in a timely way. Uh, what's, the, what's that all about? I mean, it's the law, it's federal law and state law. Why, aren't, why are they ignoring the law? I think they can afford to. They'd rather pay the penalty than staff us properly. You know, um, they don't have enough clinicians to see patients in a timely way. Most mental health circumstances de demand being seen more than once a month, once every five or six weeks. And we are ready to offer that, but we need the hours to do that. And what that means is that we need more staff so that we can provide that. Um, Kaiser can afford to do this. And as you said, it's the law, parity, mental health is health. And we need to take care of those health issues. People die from these issues and we want to prevent that. You know what? I love the Kaiser claim to the advertising word, thrive. We want our patients to thrive and it depends on mental health. It really does. So we need to serve them better than we are um, more often than we can. Where's Governor Newsom? Why aren't they enforcing the laws going after these companies when somebody commits suicide because they don't get proper care and it's required under the law? Why aren't they criminally prosecuting these executives? Isn't that, isn't that criminal negligence? It is, and Kaiser has been fined as you have brought. Talk about putting in jail. Oh. It's hard to fit a corporation in jail, you know? Are they above the law? Yeah, and we need them not to be above the law, and they can do that through reach, through Kaiser staffing us, and we'll be there. We'll be there on the lines to help people. Claudia, new HW uh, union backing up the engineers, and also for our patients. And what's happening with your patients? There have been some complaints that they're not being getting the treatment that they need? Uh, 
but they don't get them in a timely, timely manner sometimes, most of the time. Yeah. Is that legal? Not to me, no. Especially not ethically, not clinically legal or ethical. So some patients I understand have committed suicide? I'm not sure specifically, but um, there is that, you know, high risk. Mm -hmm. Also, Kaiser's taken a hard line against your union. What have they? Yeah, they've kind of put mental health off a little bit. They put it as not one of the most important items. They're, they're making a lot of profit. Yes, they're making lots and lots. They of want more, I guess. Yes, yes. We have we're inundated with need and not enough resources, and they're coming up with you know like band aids, temporary band aids that aren't really working out, kind of to you know kind of like hot potato the the patients off the responsibility off to somebody else. And these patients, when they have mental health problems, I mean they're desperate. Some of them. I mean, to get care. I mean, what does it what does it feel for you as a healthcare worker when you're not able to provide that care? It's very, it's it's very, it's hard for me personally as a clinician to. I've gotten into this field to help people to get them services that they need, and to feel in the position to be in the middleman to be unable to tell them we can get you the help that you need, even though. Kaiser's profiting so much off of everything, you know, especially with the pandemic. And because of the pandemic also, we have such high needs that there should be more investment in mental health. And what has the pandemic done to healthcare, mental healthcare, mental state of your patients? Well, I'm a child therapist. And so I receive in so many more uh, children who are suicidal, um, just really desperate, lots of, you know, anxiety, panic attacks, you know, very, a lot of psychosomatic symptoms like vomiting and um, before school every day and things like that. Um, so it's been really, really hard for them. So they don't have social skills anymore. So they're really isolated. They don't want to go out, you know. So it's, it's really, really worrisome. Sounds like a frightening situation. It is, yeah. And p families are having to move to other places because they lost jobs because of COVID. So they go live somewhere farther and the kids they have to change schools and they don't have their so social support. So it's even harder for them. But Kaiser's making all this profit. What, they're making all this profit. Why are they, they made a lot of money because of the pandemic. Yeah. People not coming in for physical appointments. Where's the money going? Yeah, I have no idea where it's going. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not okay that so many of the um, unions are going on strike, you know, this week because they're not, you know, coming to the table and bargaining at all with us. Thank you to Steve Zeltzer for those audio excerpts. The Labor Video Project videos, those excerpts were taken from, are linked up at laborexpress.org. That's all the time we have for tonight's program. Labor Express is a nonprofit 51 c 3 member of IBEW Local 1220. Views expressed on Labor Express are those of the producers of Labor Express and not necessarily those of IBEW. Labor Express is a production of the Committee for Labor Access in Chicago, the world capital of the labor movement. Labor Express is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, working people's voices, broadcasting worldwide 24 hours a day. Find out more at laborradionetwork.org. The song is our theme is called Worker's Song. It's written by Ed Pickford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. or Monday at 11 a.m. on 105.5 FM or lumpenradio.com for more Labor Express.